Let's open our Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 8. If you have a visitor slip or a prayer slip, if you want to pass that to the center aisle, we would love to collect that, and um, we'll be praying for you uh, this week. We're looking at um, our salvation from start to finish from Romans 8, verses 29 through 30, and we'll branch off and look at some other passages as well. Before we get into the text, I just want to pray for us. Let's bow together. Father, uh, what we know not, we pray that you would teach us. What we have not, we pray that you would give us. What we are not, we, we pray that you would make us for the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So one of the things we learn about our great God in looking at the Bible is that he is eternal and he is omniscient. There was never a time or a moment that our God did not exist and he knows all things actual and possible in perfect detail. That's how the Bible presents him. And these truths are, are proclaimed all throughout the scripture. I think of Psalm 90, that Psalm of Moses, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you were God. Looking to the book of Revelation, we read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then in 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul exhorts believers then and now to pursue obedience to God, the God of our salvation. He says, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are His. So as we're studying the the book of Romans and we're scaling the mountain peaks of Romans 8, we're confronted in verses 29 and 30 with this truth that our salvation specifically, God's whole plan of redemption and how that works out in us individually was on God's mind from before the world was created. Many commentators call these verses in Romans 8, and I'll remind you of them, verse 29 and 30, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, Commentators um, often refer to these two verses as a golden chain of five links. As Paul is taking us into eternity past, so why are we going into eternity past with regard to our redemption? Because that's exactly where the Apostle Paul takes us when he speaks of God's foreknowledge and God's predestinating us to be conformed to the image of his Son. And by the way, without predestination, There's no hope of being conformed to the image of Christ, according to verse 29 and 30. So this golden chain of five links, the first two, again, are concerned with God's eternal counsel and past ages. The last two are concerned with what God has has done and is doing and will do with us and for us. The middle term, calling, connects the first pair and and the last, and these doctrines flow from eternity to eternity. So these verses introduce us to five great doctrines that we're not going to pogo stick over. Foreknowledge, 
predestination, effectual calling, justification, and glorification. So let's start first with coming to terms with God's foreknowledge. And if you're just stepping in, I would urge you to go back last week and connect last week's message with this week uh, in trying to uh, understand what, what we're wanting to proclaim. So uh, coming to terms with God's foreknowledge. Now, some have argued that this, this word foreknowledge um, should be defined only in terms of God's foreknowledge. That is that God predestined to salvation those whom he saw in advance would believe on him. And that sounds inviting at first, but uh, the, the issue and the emphasis here is not on human response. The issue is on what God knows, and God has predestined to save those whom he foresaw and would choose. So this may provide momentary resolve, but upon clearer, uh, a cl- closer look, it, it, it doesn't capture what the word means, which means to know personally, to know intimately. It's not a forecast of events in the future. It's God setting his love on his people. It refers to his covenant love in which he sets his affection on those whom he has chosen. And we know that he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. So I'm presenting this doctrine not with an apology. Gee, I really hate to bring it up, but you know, it, you know. no. Paul doesn't do that. I'm not going to do that. So he frames this conversation in the context of great comfort, Romans 8:28. all things work together for good for those who love the Lord, for those called according to his purpose. He frames it with, with, to the Thessalonians in a sense that um, uh, he thanks God for his choice of them as believers um, and also as a fuel to evangelism. Paul says in 2 Timothy, I suffer all things for the sake of the elect. That means when I go into Derby, when I go into Lystra, when I go into Pisidian Antioch, the things I'm enduring in the course of fulfilling my ministry, I'm doing, that, I'm doing this to proclaim the gospel because God has many people in this city, in this, city, in this region. And my hope of anyone ever being saved is through the preaching of God's word. And so with this foreknowledge, I want to expand this a little bit with cross-references. I've been doing this in Romans 8 because I'm wanting us to know our Bibles better, and I'm wanting us to see that these are truths spoken throughout the Scripture. So in Acts chapter 2, and you can follow your insert, I have most of them there. Acts 2, verses 22 through 23, Peter is preaching. He's saying, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, that's for sure, and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Now, when you think about Jesus and the events of God's redemption, he goes on to say in verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan of God. So Jesus was arrested, Jesus was beaten, Jesus was crucified, Jesus died on the cross according to the predetermined plan of God, the definite plan of God. And he goes on to say, and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him. If we turn the page a few chapters to chapter four of Acts, verse 29. Peter and John are released. They've been interrogated and harassed and mistreated. And then they go right into a prayer room. 
And I'm amazed by the doctrine of what they prayed in Acts 4.29. He, he sums it up by saying, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak the word with great boldness because you have brought these things to pass. You have brought them all to pass. The death of your son was according to the predetermined plan of God. You establish your decree, says in verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Martin read for us earlier 1 Peter chapter 1, and Peter is addressing believers scattered through um, uh, modern Turkey, and he mentions the different provinces of that area, and he says that you are elect exile. Who talks like that? I think it's 2 John chapter 1 where John the Apostle says, to the elect lady. <laughs> Who speaks like that? Well, we find it all over our Bible that this is referenced. I think of Jesus in John 15 in the upper room discourse. He said to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Who chose whom? Now, we're going to look in this series where uh, in the call of God and the regenerating work of the Spirit, that this flows together in a beautiful unison uh, in my mind. And that uh, with God's salvation, that we are freely responding, freely repenting, and freely believing as a means of His grace in our life. So maybe you're thinking, I, I remember when I was saved, I was on a pew or in a park bench or wherever I was. And I remember saying, I'm stepping over the line here. I'm going to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm done with me. And you did repent and you did believe. And so everything I'm talking about, foreknowledge and predestination and election and all of these things, doesn't minimize that at all. The call of the gospel is a call to repent and a call to believe. And we'll look at how that unfolds because I'm going to close our message with, what about free will? I know you're thinking it. <laughs> I know you're thinking it. What about free will as if that's the rescue marker of the, uh, for us in this conversation? And I hope that you'll see it's not. So we move on from foreknowledge, which is well represented in the New Testament, and we're moving to predestination. Straight talk about, secondly, about predestination. What does it mean? We're not supposed to be afraid of Bible words. Don't be afraid of Bible words. Predestination is developed from two separate words, pre, which means before, and destiny, which means destination. And the word simply means to mark out one's destiny, to determine a person's destiny beforehand, and God is the subject of that verb. He, it's his foreknowledge, his predestination, it's his call, it's his work of sanctification, justification, sanctification. Foreknowledge means to fix one's love upon, to choose. It does not inform us of the destination to which the, uh, those chosen are appointed. This is the, what predestination supplies. So how is this used in the New Testament? I find it interesting. There's about six references. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians speaks of the, the mystery of the gospel, being on the heart and mind of God before the foundation of the world. Yet among the mature, Paul writes in chapter uh, 2, verse 6 and 8, um, we impart wisdom, not wisdom of the age, 
But we impart a secret hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed, which he predestined before the ages of our glory, for uh, for our glory. He mentions it in Ephesians 1, which we looked at last week. In love, he predestined us through adoption to be adopted according to the purpose of his will. God is the most radically free being in the universe. We hear a lot about free will, but he's the most radically free and all of his decisions are right. So, you know, this concept is um, challenging. Who, who chose whom? I think there's a place in the believer's life to pause and to say, you know, who, who gets the credit for my salvation? And I know in the divide theologically over this issue, no one would say, well, it was all up to me. So I'm not wanting to mischaracterize those who disagree with my take on this. But ultimately, to think through this, who's ultimately responsible for your salvation? And I think of other things too. If we're so geared on this is what I decided to do, what, how come you're saved and your brother's not? How come you're saved and have come to taste the goodness of God's grace, and your neighbors not. I think that really causes us to think, well, what else could I do? My boast is in the Lord and in Him alone. I think of two songs that we sing. I mentioned one last week, a hymn, an older hymn. Complete in Thee is one that I've really since you've grabbed onto as we've sung it through this year. I'm thankful for John leading us in it. Dear Savior, when before your bar all tribes and tongues assembled are. Among your chosen will I be. At your right hand, complete in thee. And the church is one foundation. I think it's verse two. Elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth. The scripture speaks of it. We sing of it. And, you know, when we look at predestination, often that's the the word that covers two things. One is election and the other is reprobation. Because not everybody's elect. That would be universalism. Everybody's saved. We know some people are not. Who's to blame for that? Well, in late January, sometime in February, we're going to be in Romans 9, and, you know, our, our challenges aren't relieved uh, after we get through uh, 29 and 30 of chapter 8. But in Romans chapter 9, if you'll remember, if you were here for Jared's message on Rebecca's lament, if you haven't listened to that, you need to. And she's really wondering, I've got two, you know, I've got a civil war going on in me with this pregnancy. And God says, you've got two nations there. They're warring against one another. And in Romans 9, Paul picks up on that and he says, before they had done anything good or bad, God said the older will serve the younger. They haven't done anything good or bad that God's purpose of election should stand. So when you're looking at the family of Isaac and Rebekah and the two sons Esau and Jacob, they're doing whatever they want to do and what happens in the end when all is said and done? God's word is true. God's word is true. It says in verse 22, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That's a very serious verse. 
And right there, you know, in the conversation and the thoughts about it, people want to just tap out. <laughs> I'm done. I don't want to think anymore about this. Um, this is really uncomfortable. Um, and often this thought of double predestination, what, what should I think of that term? I don't think that's a good term at all. Uh, because it misrepresents the way God deals with his elect and with the non-elect. It's a term I, I don't think is helpful because it gives the impression that God deals with, with both the same way and he doesn't. Here's how I try to resolve this tension in my mind. If we believe that God knows everything, no matter how you resolve the issue of foreknowledge and election, and by the way, there's lots of slack in the rope here. I understand the trouble and the tension with it. But no matter how you resolve the issue of foreknowledge and predestination, God has still created people he knew would perish. Apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ, we're all perishing. And all of us deserve an eternal punishment. That God would save any and that he was not, and he was not obligated to do so, but that he would save any. What does that vindicate? What does that say about God that he is merciful because we're receiving what we don't deserve. That, for me, is relief and or insight into understanding this tension. God was not obligated to save anyone. And where people tap out, again, using that word picture, is um, I, I just can't, I, I can't accept a God like that. That's a monstrous distortion of the gospel, people would say. And what I'm wanting to contend with you in this conversation is that's how it's revealed to us to take seriously. You give your heart to it. You look at it. You remain unconvinced. I'm not wanting to engage you in a debate. I don't want to have a graceless debate on grace because that's what we're talking about. So there's lots of room here for you to dig into it, but you'll never dig into it unless you're challenged to do so which is why I've said we're going to give a month to this. This is week two. We're going to give some time to this so that you might enter into the full extent. So let's move on to, thirdly, wrestling with the tensions. I want to spend some time kind of just looking at Scripture verses because often we can say uh, in conversations, well, there, there you have it. We, I have a verse that settles the issue. What do you mean? Well, I mean, you know, John 3.16 and the wonderful presentation of that truth from the choir this morning uh, with other scriptures that seem to contradict it. Oh, great, you're going to confuse us this morning. I hope not. <laughs> I'm wanting to hold uh, that in scripture there are tensions that we need to keep tight. And so in Genesis 32, there's an episode of Jacob wrestling with an angel and after wrestling through the night, um, the angel says, let, I, I must go, let me go, the, the morning has come. And Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I think that's a good word picture on difficult concepts in the scripture. I'm going to wrestle with this, and Lord, would you bless me in it. Wrestling is a good illustration of our need to think about challenging doctrines. So what verses are you referring to as being contradictory. How about John 3.16? In my pastoral records, which are not infallible, I've, I've preached over 15 messages on John 3.16 in the last 30 years. I love that. It's a great sum of the gospel. 
I think two different Christmas seasons, we spent a month on John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's a great sum of the gospel to speak of the love of God. But one of the challenges we face living in this culture and maybe conditioning we've had through the years is is what D.A. Carson calls the difficult doctrine of the love of God. We wouldn't think the love of God would be a difficult doctrine at all. We would think of predestination and the Trinity and doctrines like that. That's mind-stretching and challenging. But the love of God? But listen to Carson. He says, if people believe in God at all today, the overwhelming majority hold what? He's a loving God. They don't need to be convinced of that. You do an interview on the street, that's what you're going to hear. But Carson goes on to say, we live in a culture in which many other truths about God are disbelieved. People don't believe them. Like what? Like God's really sovereign, and that he's holy, and that he has wrath, and that he is the judge of the universe. People don't want to hear that. We want a, we want a God who loves, and I, I'm all for championing that, rightly understood, but the scripture speaks so many other things about him. Now, look with me in the same Gospel of John, John 3.16, John 6.44. John 6.44. This is the chapter where many bolted and walked no longer with him. And in the course of that teaching, Jesus said in John 6.44, you there? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Okay, we got John 3.16 over here, which is a great sum of the gospel. Whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. And then we read in John 6.44 from the lips of our Savior, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. That's a universal negative. No one can do what? Come to me unless what? The Father draws them through the work of the Spirit to bring about a change in our heart. Let's look at another one, 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2, I hear the pages. Don't grow weary in well-doing. 1 Timothy 2, verse 4. This is one of those verses where people will read it often in this debate and say, there, that settles it. Well, it's a wonderful declaration of the disposition of God, that he's a a God desiring all to be saved. Chapter 2 is committed to prayer, and Paul calls Timothy to make prayer a first priority, to pray for those in authority over us that Martin helped us to do this morning. And then he says in verse 3, this is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There you have it. God can't have any other desires. It's possible for him to decree one thing and dispositionally feel benevolent and gracious on another We know that he takes no delight in the death of the wicked, but the wicked die. So he 
doesn't desire that any perish. He says he desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of, of the truth, but people perish and die in their sins. So, holding that up with 1 Timothy 4.10, turn there with me. And we're reading verses like this, for to this end we toil and strive. So, Paul and all the things he said about foreknowledge and predestination, he's saying we're, we're toiling and we're striving in the work of the gospel. That's what this chapter is about. Disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness. And he says we're in this labor and toil because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people. And then he qualifies, he says, especially of those who believe. What does that mean? Well, I would say that God's saving disposition is seen in a world even by those who ignore him and mock him and blaspheme him. I remember the scene with the rich young ruler. He came to Jesus and he unpacked his resume and Jesus said, sell all that you have and give to the poor and come follow me. And the scripture says that Jesus loved him as he walked away and he spoke truth to him. So especially for those who believe refers to those under the new covenant grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's saving disposition is seen in this world. We, we have neighbors, we have friends who reject the gospel, have, who want nothing to do with the scripture, who don't give a thought about God any day of their life. And yet God blesses them what? With sun, sunshine and with rain and with children and with good food and pleasant accommodations and entertainment and bucket lists, and all these other things to enjoy their existence in this world while not caring one bit of the God who created them in his image. But God's saving goodness in a temporal sense is seen in their lives. And then he says, especially for believers, to know God's forgiveness, to be adopted into his forever family, to be redeemed from a life of destruction and crowned with loving kindness and tender mercy. One of my favorite references in Isaiah 43, fear not, I've redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, you sh they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. The saving disposition of God. Well, let's look at one other. Second Peter 3, verse 9. Now, this is a, a popular go-to in reference to there's no way that God's election can be unconditional. There's no way that God's predestination it can be powerful in the way I'm speaking of it. In 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years for one day. That's a statement of God's timelessness, his eternity. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, on the face of it, it seems to contradict that God elects according to his sovereign grace. These verses suggest that God wants everyone to be saved. Therefore, they will be, 
They will be, or um, wants everyone to be saved, but there is a condition to it. Look at this verse more closely. He says, is patient towards you. Who's you? Not wishing any should perish. Any is referring to you. Who is the you and the any in this passage? Um, The context tells us in verse 8 that Peter writes, do not overlook one fact, beloved. He's talking to believers. This passage does not suggest that God desires every single person who is ever born will be saved, but the passage confirms the confidence that the believer has in God's grace from start to finish will come to completion in faith and in repentance. Now to free will. What about free will? What about it? Does man have free will? And I think this part will be important as we're processing this together. This question has challenged the greatest of theologians and philosophers. And the prevailing opinion in academia and in the field of psychology is that um, man does not have free will. That he, through the influence of evolutionary thought and, and theory and impact, human beings are driven by Uh, biological factors which say in effect that our glands and our genes and not ourself, we're we're not free. So the burning question may be wanting to ask, how am I to understand foreknowledge, predestination, election in light of human choices? Are we free to do what we want to do? Whenever we want to do it, And if you mean by that, does a person have the freedom to do whatever he wants to do on any occasion? I would say the answer is yes. You made a decision to come here today. You you and I make decisions every day of our lives. All men at all time, all women at all times are always free to do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it. We believe that human beings always and only do what they, what they please and therefore are responsible for what they do. Because men and women always do what they want to do, we are responsible for what we do. It's impossible to force the will of man. The freedom to do what we want is something that God created us to do. However, Just because every man is free to do whatever they want to do, every woman is free to do whatever she wants to do and therefore responsible, does not mean that we are free to do what we ought to do. And that's vital, especially with regard to obedience to God. There's a difference between doing what we want to do and doing what we ought to do, namely what God's commanded And as sinners, we don't do that. Why? Because our soul is in bondage to sin. Our soul, our will, our desire are are under bondage. That is why we're spending so much time in following the Apostle Paul's arguments to Romans 8. Remember Romans 3. There should be no comfort in your mind. Hey, I got a free will. When your will is described like this as a lost person, there's none righteous, no, not one, not even you. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together 
They become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So while we're free to do what we want to do when we want to do it with regard to obedience to God and His saving grace, we, in our lost state, we don't want it. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. There's no appetite for it. Apart from God's regenerating work through the preaching of the gospel and the work of the Spirit, we would die in our sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive in Christ Jesus. And so I would encourage you to think of free will in these terms. Let me borrow Thomas Boston, an English Puritan who years ago spoke of the fourfold state. And so as you're thinking about the human will, your will, your decisions, your salvation, your relationship with God, why does Romans 8, 29, and 30 matter? Remember Thomas Boston who spoke of the human experience in four states. First was the state of innocence, all the way into the Garden of Eden. Did Adam have the ability to do good? Yes. He, was, he, he and Eve were the only human beings who weren't created with a sin nature. And they walked in uh, perfect fellowship with God. Did they have the ability to do evil? Well, why do you think we're in the mess we're in now? Yes, they disobeyed God's command, catapulted the human race into misery, and all of us have followed in their, ste- in their steps. So we move from innocence, secondly, to the state of, of sin. The fall of Adam was devastating. Apart from God's grace that makes us alive and see the beauty of Christ, we would not want that. Everything that we do without him falls short of his glory, Romans 3.23. Yeah, by the way, we spent months on Romans 3 on purpose to see what God says about us apart from Jesus Christ. It's a tragic picture. Now, for some, for, for something to be good in the sight of God, it requires, one, that God commanded it. Also, it requires faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God and a right motivation to honor the Lord in it. So, uh, so now the question, do we have the freedom, the ability apart from God's salvation? No, we don't. We need a changed heart, which comes only through Jesus Christ. Paul said the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Their foolishness to him. So Jesus said, if the Son will make you free, you'll be free indeed. In fact, he said, in talking to the Pharisees, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Jesus said that. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The the Son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. And that is a beautiful picture of salvation. I've been set free from the bondage of my sin, and what I once hated, I now love. So the gospel was presented to many. Now, when you're processing of this, would you think hard with me on this point, on God's justice, which is perfect? The gospel is presented to many, and many make a mockery out of it. Every week I read the news, I see people making a mockery out of the Bible, out of God, out of Christ, out of salvation, out of the cross, out of Christian truth. 
They despise the whole thing. Their hearts hate every bit of what he thinks they understand about or she thinks that they, she understands about Christianity and the gospel. They hate the whole thing. Am I the only one who picks that up in the avenue of news? It's everywhere. It's in sports. It's in academia. It's in the business world. It's in the government. They don't want anything to do with Christ. You talk about God all day long. Oh, yeah, we like God talk. You bring up Jesus Christ and the exclusivity of the gospel, you're out. We hate that. Because they reject Christ and his claims. And often behind that is, you know, I'm not going to follow him. I got big plans for my life. I got bucket lists that I need to follow through on. There's no room for Christ in my life. I've often referenced Bill Gates who said, my time, I, I could better use my time on Sunday morning than going to church. They want nothing to do with his lordship. They care nothing about living in disobedience or in obedience to him. This person with this mindset when confronted with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, how do they respond? No. I don't want that at all. I will not submit to Christ. They're doing what they want to do. They're doing what they want to do. So what's the only thing that can reverse that? The power of the gospel. The power of the word of God, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And then the state of grace, a, Christ, a Christian who's been redeemed, born again, can do good by God's grace. You know, Romans 8 begins with, there's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We can do that which is pleasing to God, exercised in faith, offered with a right heart and motive to serve the Lord with gladness. Is a Christian a able to do good? Yes, by the grace of Christ. Is a Christian able to do evil? Well, we know we can, right? And yet, it is the grace of God that moves in our life that there's forgiveness even then. And then the final state is glory. Saved to sin no more. We got more to say about that later. But let me just move us to the Lord's table. How does this message impact what we're about to do with the body and blood of the Lord? Election and predestination does not bypass your need for Jesus Christ. These doctrines are the means to connect you with the good news of what God has done through the work of his son. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ were planned from the foundation of the world and the grace of God in Christ is what you and I need most. This supper proclaims that. Jesus commanded us to observe this supper that proclaims his death until he comes. And as a church body, um, it is our privilege to, to remember that and to proclaim that together. I'm gonna ask the deacons to come and join me at the front.